This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. Paul McDermott, and this is a podcast about great Irish albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information about all of the albums we've covered so far. And at the end of this episode, you'll hear a preview of episode number nine. This eighth episode focuses on the self-titled debut album by Revelino, released on Dirt Records in 1994. Revelino were from Ballantyr at the base of the Dublin Mountains, Brendan Tallon on vocals and guitar, Bren Burry on guitar, Kieran Tallon, Brendan's younger brother, on guitar, Alan Montgomery or Monty on bass, and Shane Rafferty on drums. Brendan, Bren and Shane had all played together in the Coltrane's and Monty had been a member of the Dixons. In the last episode, Stan Arocht talked about a time in 1989 when the Stars of Heaven recorded demos for Mother Records. And there's a Mother Records link here too. The Dixon's 1989 single I Have Fun came out on Mother and the Coltrane's I Wake Up from 91 came out on Sun Records, a subsidiary of Mother. But it didn't happen for the Coltrane's. Far from being beaten, they retreated and regrouped. Kieran and Monty joined and the three-guitar Revelino emerged fully formed. They'd put the time in, they'd spent years in practice rooms and they'd gigged all over the country. They were the walking embodiment of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule. They were also brilliant live, a three-guitar attack, soaring harmonies and great, great pop songs. The New York Times summed the band up best when they wrote, Revelino was a consummate band, playing driving, catchy, psychedelia-tinged power pop. Its best songs, like Happiness Is Mine, were beautiful, harmony-laden confections, full of falsetto singing and buzzing guitars. Revelino released three great albums before calling it a day in the early noughties. Their debut self-titled album was reissued in 2020 to huge acclaim. And it's to that album that we return for this episode. So here we go. To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, Episode 8, Revelino. It's my great pleasure to welcome Brendan Tallon. Is it Bren or Brendan? What do you go by usually? Brendan usually. Yeah, that's what I thought. I always get yourself and Bren mixed up, you know? Yeah, Bren prefers to go by Bren. His dad is a Bren as well. And my dad is Brendan and my sister married a Brendan. His best friend is a Brendan. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you know the scene from Monty Python. The guy comes into this uh, setup in the outback and, you know, this is Clive, this is Clive, this is Clive, this is Clive, this is Clive. We had one of those situations where somebody came into the room, we were watching a, a football match, and it was like, yeah, this is Brendan, 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 and this is Brendan. <laughs> and the punchline is on the Monty Python one, he says, what's your name? And he goes, Eric, and he goes, ooh, that's going to complicate things. <laughs> oh, I yeah, love it, really I love it. 
What I wanted to say was when Revelino arrived, they were this fully formed band. And of course, there was years before this of playing gigs all over the place with the coal trains. What I loved about the coal trains was on the back of that seven inch, it says, this is beat music. Play it loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, since we agreed to do the, the podcast, I was thinking about that. And really, yeah, Coltrane's is a big part of the story, especially when it comes to do with the first album. Because actually some of the songs that ended up on the first album were actually recorded during Coltrane's era. Uh, demos and stuff that we did for various companies and different sessions. The album is kind of like a, an amalgamation of different sessions. It wasn't all done in one go. Yeah, and it was done over about a year or two between the Cold Trains ending and Revelino beginning. But to be honest, Cold Trains didn't really end. It was just a name change and we brought Kieran in. So it was the same personnel. As you said, the Cold Trains are one of the busiest bands at that time. We literally played anywhere anybody wanted us to play. We were initially, you know, messing around as bands do, you know, as a band called the uh, Crocodile Tears. And we did a few you know, small venues, local bars and, you know, some support gigs around, but it wasn't very serious, you know. From the off, we had a good crowd, good following. Uh, I remember we played a place up here in Kilchernan called the Golden Ball, which was literally a small old pub in the middle of nowhere. And for some reason, we went up and asked the guy there, would he mind us putting on a gig, you know. So it was a Saturday night or Friday night and we uh, I remember we were sitting there with all the gear set up and everything. Not, not a sinner in the place. The 44 bus used to take people from Ballantyre up past Kilternan and the first one arrived up at quarter past eight and it was, there was 50 people there from Ballantyre poured out the bus into the bar. and Oh, brilliant, fantastic. And then a quarter of an hour later, Another one came up from Ballantyre. Another 50 people poured out. So straight away, we kind of had a, a bit of a following because I think we were one of the first bands from Ballantyre that was, you know, we were pretty tight and we were writing our own stuff. And, and you know, we had a lot of friends and extended family and stuff that came to see us straight away. So that became a kind of home for the Crocodile Tears initially. Uh, we all had jobs. I was a graphic designer. No, graphic artist, not designer. Brian was working in Irish life. Um, Shane was a printer. And we just decided we were just loving this thing so much that we would we were going to give up our jobs and we were going to go full-time practicing. And we were going to rehearse every single day, Monday to Friday. We luckily got the use of a, a youth club up here near Marley, which was, you know, five minutes walk from where we all lived. And there was a teacher there who he gave us a room uh, that we sound, you know, soundproofed, and he gave us a little storeroom with a big uh, metal door on it to check our gear. And we went up there every day, clocking in. We practiced all day. Did you go up every day religiously and do it every day? It was, it was my kind of idea to do it. And I said, "Look, lads, if we're going to do this, it's not to stop working and hang around and do nothing. It's actually we're going to give this a real shot, you know, because we were." We all really wanted to give it a go, so we went up. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't any distractions. If it was a nice sunny day or we did get one of those, um, you know, table football things in, which was a major mistake. <laughs> so, like they write essays about this these days, talking about the 10,000 hours. There's your 10,000 hours. Yeah, exactly. And, and like when we were in the Crocodile Tears, we had already done, you know, all the hours in the garages of different parents. And But when we decided we were going to go full time, this is what we did. And we went up there every day and we just loved to practice. We practiced and we practiced. and we did that for maybe a year or two. We built up a set first 
And then we started gigging. So we were gigging really hard. We were practicing really hard. I mean, to be honest, like we even practiced on Christmas Day and stuff because, we, you know, we were sitting around watching the telly and getting a bit bored. And I got a phone call, you know, hey, grab a few beers and let's meet up at the practice room. Because it was it's real close kind of social life for us and we were just loving it. And there's nothing we prefer to do, you know, than practice. I mean, people often ask me, you know, what's your happiest memories about the Revelino and the Coltrane's? And I often say the laughter, you know, the kind of fun that we had because there was a lot of really funny people involved in the band and even the people on the outside of the band, like the guy who wrote it for us and the guy who was sound guy, they were really funny people, you know? So there's a lot of laughter. But actually... My best memories are being in practice rooms, coming up with a song for the first time and playing it from start to finish. And it, it's there, it's fully formed. And you'd literally be walking out of there like totally on cloud nine, you know. So the Coltrane's put that kind of work in and we did that for a few years. And, you know, we got tighter and tighter and tighter. And with us, we always had this thing where we played some venues regularly. We started off doing a place called Walters and Dunleary. And again, really good crowds in and all. And we always used to feel that every time we played, we'd have to have a couple of new songs. So we were literally writing songs, you know, or coming up with songs every single week. Well, now we realize that bands play the same 30 songs all the time because that's what people want to hear. <laughs> they actually want to hear the same 30 songs. All, but we had this thing, oh, we better, you know, so we were pretty prolific on a number of fronts, but we were doing it full time. So we were going the usual route, which was you got signed by a record company. and That's how you made an album. There was uh, some interest in the Coltrane's and we did have a, a single that ended up in the charts, even though it was biggest pile of crap I think I've ever been involved in. We had actually some great songs and some, you know, we really good stuff. But that single was a mistake for numerous reasons, I think. It was the latest song that was hot and we were really excited about it. And then we went in into the studio. We didn't spend a, a lot of time in studios back then. So we had got a little bit of, you know, inexperience and the red light went on and we just went at a thousand miles an hour. But the song actually did end up in the charts and we got some record interest. We had done the five or six years of the Coltrane's and uh, we kind of hit a wall with it because there wasn't an opportunity to make a record, which... By that time, we could have made three or four really good albums, I think, because we had so much material and we had a really nice sound as the four-piece yeah. brand was using the 12-string Rickenbacker. Yeah, yeah. So it had a kind of Birdsian feel to it. Before bands like the Laz and the Stone Roses were doing that kind of thing, we were, you know, immersed in that kind of style, you know, very much influenced by early R.E.M. and, uh, and the Birds and stuff, you know. That was a subsidiary of Mother. That was Sun Records. Mm. Was Year Hope at the time, Brendan, if we get this single out on Sun, maybe Mother will put an album out? Was that the way you were thinking at the time? That was kind of the way it was going to go, except we kind of, again, we made a bit of a fatal mistake. You know, there's been certain eras for us, and one of the eras was Walters. But at that point, we had moved on to the Bagging Inn. And the Bagot Inn was our home. It's like being a football team in your home stadium. And every time we played the Bagot Inn, we knew the sound was going to be amazing. We were comfortable there. Lots of people coming to see us. It was a real venue, you know. And the time we got the interest in the record companies, for some reason, we picked this other venue 
that, you know, the sound wasn't really good and we weren't comfortable in, you know, it was one of those situations, you know, kind of made a mistake that time. And to be honest, we kind of have ourselves to blame. We got a bit uptight and stuff. Uh, we just didn't perform well when at the times when there was that kind of interest, you know, we felt we'd done as much as we could as the cold trains and it hadn't happened. So, OK, what's the next thing? Around that time, there was kind of talk about the cold trains lacking some kind of energy on stage or whatever the management was discussing with us. And we kind of felt that ourselves and stuff. So the idea was that we'd bring my brother Kieran in. He was a bit of a live wire and he looked really good, you know, and he had a different angle musically to us. He was coming more from the uh, Sonic Youth Pixies perspective. And the other thing was now we had three guitars, which was an, an unusual thing for a band at the time, you know. But I felt that was okay because normally when you go into a studio anyway, you end up overdubbing guitars on, you usually end up with three or four guitars on the songs anyway, you know. So let's do it live. He's there. We were having a good time together. He was always around the band in the Coltrane's anyway because he was our lighting guy. So he was traveling with us since the age of 16. We had moved, actually moved into a house together as well. We were living in a house in Marley, the four of us in the band in the Coltrane's. And Kieran used to, obviously, it was only up the road from where he was living with our parents. So he was up there most nights of the week. It was party central. <laughs> the young ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I always say it was like the monkeys without the hits, you know. <laughs> so the idea was that he came into the band and we hadn't really decided whether we were going to change the name or not. At that point, when we were the Coltrane's and we had the record label Interest, uh, we had been asked by a publishing company in England to do a demo to try and get some. Um, we actually had an in company in Boston and a company in England who were working together to get us distribution in America. So we were very excited about that. And they sent over this guy called Dave Wiberly from England, who was a producer. And it was the first time we'd ever really worked with a producer, you know. And he was great because he, he came over from London. And the first thing he did was he came up to the house where we lived and he stayed up all night with us singing songs around the acoustic guitar. And he asked me to play him some of the songs. He came to the rehearsals. He came to the pub with us. So he spent a few days just hanging out with us and getting to know us, you know. So we went in and we, we demoed a few songs for those, those companies. And we got She's Got the Face. I don't know if you're familiar with the song. So we got that song and we got Hello from that session. I know we did re-record Hello later on. Emily Says came from another demo that was done at the Coltrane's. Uh, we were in the factory just practicing and we brought a little um, a four, and it was an A-track Tascam machine, reel to reel, and we were recording the, the rehearsals. So that's where we got Emily Says from. The album was kind of brought together from different sessions that happened at the end of the Coltrane's and before we started Revelino. Yeah, we took a year out or whatever it was and we were demoing and uh, just trying to do a bit more work in the recording studio by basically buying our own task and reel to reel and we got a desk into the house and we just started messing around recording just trying to get a bit more experience with that because we always felt that when we went into recording studios in those days it was such a kind of you know shock to be it costs a lot of money to go into a studio so the man i bumped you for last week yeah okay stan he said when the stars of heaven did their first single well before ye brendan but he said it cost them 600 old poons for the 12-hour session. And he said the average industrial wage at the time for a civil servant would have been about £600 a month. Yeah. He also said, which I'm sure you can relate yeah, to, yeah. he said that 
Anytime they went into a studio in those early years, he said the power structure was totally in the hands of the engineer. Oh, totally. And the band were made to feel as if they hadn't a clue what to do. Oh, absolutely. Couldn't agree with more. Yeah, well, and it was a kind of frightening experience being in the studio a lot of times, you know. Now, we did we did work with some good people. Pete Holiday did work with us on a couple of things, and he was great. He like I learned a lot of, from Pete because he he talked about, you know, what makes a great single and stuff. It was the first time somebody would talk to you like that. Everything has to be exciting. Everything has to be a hook, you know. And then you start thinking like that, you know. So, yeah, I definitely agree with that the first time we went in demo. And you always felt like you were against the clock. You know, this guy you were, you were recording, it was the first time you ever met him, you know. When we got the bits and pieces of recording equipment up into the house and we just started, you know, messing around, we recorded this uh, bunch of songs called Radio Berlin, which was mostly acoustic guitars and stuff. And it's really nice little package of songs, just trying to get, you know, that experience with recording. I wish at the time I had paid more attention to the actual technical part of it, because now that I'm recording myself, but in those days, I just concentrate on writing the songs and playing them. And we always had an engineer there that looked after all that kind of stuff. You know, it was like separated that way. Was it always you brought the songs to the table? Yeah, I wrote all the songs. There must have been a point over the career of the band that other members of the band brought ideas or lyrical ideas or melody ideas to the table. Or was it almost this unwritten thing from the start? No, lads, I'm the songwriter. I think, well, Brent did write a couple of songs early on in the Coltrane's, but, you know, like anybody with their first couple of songs, it's a craft which you have to learn as well. And by that point, I had done a good uh, six or seven years writing songs all the time, as I said. So at that point, I mean, I had, yeah, I had a lot of that under my belt. No, I never turned around and I said, look, lads, this is my band. I'm going to do all the songwriting here. I just think they just left it to me and they were, you'd have to talk to Bren about it. But, you know, Bren has always said that he he has been a fan of my songs from the start. And uh, Kieran was only kind of, he was busy learning how to play guitar (laughs) at that point. And obviously, you know, uh, yeah, so it was just left to me. I mean, in those days, though, I was, I could be a difficult person. I know I, pretty much uh, had a heavy presence, you know. So for I, d- I don't think people could have turned around to me and said, oh, you need to rewrite the lyrics on that. <laughs> uh, they're not strong enough or whatever. You know, I don't know. You'd have to talk to the lads about that. So you didn't take criticism well, Brendan? Yeah, I don't know. I, I just, you know, I'd have to think about it a bit more, but maybe I, I was a bit of a heavy presence. And maybe it wasn't that I couldn't take criticism, but it kind of, like, you know, there might have been a bit of a, that you can't say anything to them kind of thing, you know? Fans have really interesting dynamics. Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, it's. It, I just keep saying, you know, you, it, people need therapy sessions after being in the band. But you probably spend more time with the lads in the band than you would with your family back then. Well, in those days, I was living with the guys. We were waking up and we were having breakfast and then we'd go to rehearsal and we'd come back and we'd sit around and we'd make a fire and we'd sit around and watch the Italian football, sit around with a couple of acoustic guitars and maybe have a couple of drinks and off to do gigs on the weekend. And But we really got on well. I mean, we, you know the blue light, Paul, do you? No. It's a pub just on the mountains here and it's a bit of a legendary place. But we used to, if we didn't have a gig on the weekend, we used to go up there and do covers gigs. When we were doing the full-time practice and we kind of t- decided, well, every Friday, let's learn a cover because it'd be good for us to know how other bands 
arrange songs and stuff. And anyway, it's a, it's a break and a bit of crack. Yeah, yeah. So we built up a huge amount of covers that we could do. Those gigs probably paid better at the time, I imagine, as well, Brendan. I never got a penny from a Revelino gig or a Coltrane's gig. Yeah. But I didn't have to worry about food or drink or yeah. uh, the rent on the house. So there was a couple of times where we got into trouble with the gas bill. So we arranged, there's a bar called the Coach House here. They have a back bar. So we used to go in there and we charge a five in and we literally call it the gas bill gig. And a hundred people would come in and we then we could pay our bill and, you know, clear off a few debts and stuff. This gig that we used to do in the Blue Lights, we used to go up there and do covers. And after the gig, half the pub would come back to the house with us. So we were, yeah, we were like really, really close. You know, I didn't see my family at all, probably for long periods of that time. So we were really, really tight. We, we had great fun and we great laugh, but I do imagine that I was might have been a heavy presence at times. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think, you, but I don't know. I don't think the lads really put a huge amount of thought into it because I was churning out the songs. And they all thought, yeah, these songs are pretty good, you know. So maybe they were a little bit shy about bringing their own ones in uh, or whatever. But, you know, when we went into the rehearsal studio, I mean, everybody did, you know, contribute to the arrangements and stuff. And especially when Kieran came along, even though he was a new guy, he was fairly forceful in his ideas. And subconsciously, I started writing with three guitars in mind, uh, or maybe even consciously, uh, you know. So the stuff went from a more kind of jangly sound that we had in the Coltrane's, you know, there was more heavy riffs and stuff. So I think I was thinking, okay, I've got to write for three guitars now, but that's kind of exciting because we can, you know, we can do this and we can do that, you know? So I'll tell you what happened. We went, I wrote a batch of songs in a month or two. The way you say that, it sounds so easy. Oh, I wrote a batch of songs. Like, Well, I was, I was doing it all the time, you see. That's what I do. I still do that. That's what I still do, you know? At that time, but I remember I wrote uh, Don't Leave Me Down, Happiness Is Mine, Feel So Tired, and a few other songs. In the same batch? Yeah, it was kind of like in a month or two. And what we we decided, we were going to uh, Deck Jones of uh, Blue and Heaven. He lived in Churchtown, and he had a, um, a really big practice space at his back garden. So we rented that out, out for a couple of days, and we went in. Probably this was the first time we really went in as a five-piece band now. We worked up Happiness Is Mine and we worked up Don't Leave Me Down and a couple of the others feel so tired and stuff in one kind of night. And I remember coming out of that session going, oh, wow, you know, and they pretty much had fully formed straight away. I think the feeling then was between us that, look, we're going to have to put an album out. We're not going to go through the the route that we just went through again, which was three or four years of gigging and waiting for somebody to come along and bless us with some studio. Hanging around with the promise. Yeah, allow us to get into a studio. So basically, okay, we're going to fund this ourselves, you know. We just believed in it enough. We got money together somehow. I think we borrowed off one of the parents. We hired a studio down in Carlo. Our very good friend, Ronan McHugh, had just completed a course in sound engineering. He was dabbling with us on the stuff that we had set up in the house. So we brought Ro down with us. We went down there because we wanted to get away from the distractions of the parties. You know, we wanted to really concentrate. Let's lock ourselves away in a place down the country and get this album out. So we went down there, but we found distractions of our own. (laughs) Of course. I remember it was a tennis court and we started playing lots of tennis. And then there was a place down the road we were bringing uh, boomers in. A local pub. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, two liters of boomers. We all started playing chess. So I learned how to play chess. I got so obsessed with chess 
that I remember actually sitting with Kieran one time and I was going, my God, I'm thinking like if I want to go over and put the kettle on, I've got to do a rook move. And he was saying, that's exactly what I'm doing. So the two of us went, okay, no more chess because we're actually starting to dream about it and all, you know. It's not very rock and roll though, I'm sure it's not Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it was just, and it was like children, we were so easily distracted, you know. We came back from that session and you know, my tennis was getting a lot better. And uh, We had recorded a good batch of songs, but the problem was that in those days, the way you recorded stuff was you got the bass player and the drummer to play along with a guy at guitar. And they did the whole album. And then you overdub the guitars and then you overdub the vocals. You know, back in Revelino time, I decided the way I want to do it is I'm going to do we do one song. One at a time. Because you keep the energy up. You know, if you do it like, you know, 12 songs or whatever, 13 songs, bass and drums, it's difficult for them. It's difficult for you. You're not here. They're just hanging around. You're not, and you're hanging around, exactly. Now, you're not getting the full picture. But that was the way people were supposed to, you know, you know, in inverted commas, record albums. So we came back from that. We got Happiness is Mine from that session. And we got Don't Leave Me Down. And I think one or two other songs. There was a few of them that were really lacking in energy, you know. Okay, what are we going to do? So it was like, okay, we take one more plunge at this. So we decided to rent another studio in town in Dublin and get Paul Thomas. Going back to that thing about me being a pretty heavy presence and stuff, Ronan was a good few years younger than me. So I don't think he was in a position to produce friends with me. He wasn't in a position to turn around and go, look, that's not in the right key for your voice or whatever, or you need to get to the chorus quicker. He wasn't in that position. He was engineering the album, but he wasn't producing it. You said... The first two records were basically recorded live. It gives them a sense of energy. Yeah. But sonically, they could have been better. Yeah. If we had a bit of guidance. Yeah. And then you said the others in the band mightn't agree, but our first album was mixed in one night. Most of the band were asleep on the floor at the time. Yeah, that's right. I might have exaggerated slightly there because I'm referring in what I'm saying there with this session that we did with Paul Thomas. We went in with the idea that we were going to overdub stuff. We did overdub the piano on Happiness is Mine and the cello on Don't Leave Me Down. And we overdubbed the strings for She's Got the Face. That was like, you know, a demo from a year back or so in the Coltrane times. So we were doing work like that. But when we went into that session first and Paul Thomas was sitting there the first time I ever met him, I said, so, OK, what are we going to do? And he said, I think you should scrap it all. I think it lacks energy. We need to do the whole thing live. And we were like, yeah, but we've only got, I don't know, five or six days we booked in the studio and we're really running out of money now. And he goes, well, okay, so what songs do you really think are okay from the Carlos session? So I said, well, this one and this one. But he said, okay, but these songs are supposed to be rocking, right? You know, like, and he kind of had an energy about them that was infectious, you know? So he was like, I'll tell you what we're going to do. And this was a crazy idea, right? He said, we're going to get the drums and we're going to put them in beside the desk and we're going to have the studio speakers up really, really loud and put guitar amps out in the studio and you're going to be standing in here playing with the drummer and we're going to record the whole album again in one go, right? So we were like, that's insane. Putting the, the drums in the room with the speakers where they're blasting out music. Bleeding. He was so convinced and he was so convincing and he was so full of energy about this. 
that I thought, God, it sounds like a bit of fun. Let's try it, you know. We set the drums up in the studio and lo and behold, we got really high energy takes of five or six songs. Uh, and we were pretty much playing them live, you know. So by the end of that session, then we had Happiness is Mine, Don't Leave Me Down. And we had this new batch of six or seven songs. On the final day, literally, we were working all the way through the night trying to get this thing mixed because we'd run out of money. Uh, do you know the studios in Dublin? I know some of them, some of them. Yeah. Do you remember Sun Studios? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And there was another studio that was above the uh, Irish Music Store there. Yeah. That was where we recorded. I know where you mean. Yeah, I just don't remember the name. Of it. That's where we recorded those six songs. And so we needed to get this mixed because we just couldn't afford to go back in the studio later on to mix it. Drinking buckets of coffee and stuff. Eventually, everybody started falling off. But I do remember the sun coming up and me and Paul Thomas just trying to keep our eyes open and mix some, you know, the last couple of songs. We got it done. And then we had those seven or eight songs, which we put together with some other sessions. As I said, we had Emily Says from a rehearsal and we'd done a session with Tim Boland. Tim was a great engineer. Uh, he's since moved up to Los Angeles, but he had a little home studio set up. And during that period, we were demoing here and there, just trying to get more experience in the thing. And I think he gave us a really good offer. Come on over to the, my, the studio and, you know, throws a few quid. And we actually got two songs out of that session, one being Tonight and stuff. And he got a really nice crisp sound. It was all a little bit haphazard and it wasn't, you know, top quality. I mean, I, I recently read about the Frank and Walters recording after all. They did it first with Edwin Collins, I think. And then they went up and they did it with Brody from uh, the Lightning Seed. So, I mean, like they, they were operating on that level, you know, obviously working in great studios with very experienced producers because they knew they had an amazing song there that was going to be a hit if it was going to be done properly. You know what I mean? But for us, we were pretty much just scraping things together and, OK, that song will do. But it came together. It was a really cohesive package in the end. When you decided to revisit the record, yeah. I assume you had to listen back to it. Yeah. Like most musicians, you probably don't listen to your own records. So, Not at all, no. But you had to go back and revisit it to probably okay the pressing or whatever. Do you feel it's a cohesive body of work? Because I know that you think the second and third albums are superior records. Well, I'll tell you, I'll stop you there because, I mean, you're dead right. I have listened to the albums a handful of times since they've been made, you know. And you're right, musicians don't, just don't enjoy that process because it's all like oh I wish I'd have done that and I had it done that it's out now it's finished other people are listening to it and getting their own perspective on it it's not yours anymore really you know over the years whenever we'd meet we'd say look we've got to get a, a website up at least you know put the, the official videos up on YouTube or something just do something because you know there was no presence from Revelino at all you know and um, we kind of like felt that we were a little bit like a forgotten band you know we were discussing this and so we decided to get an archive of photographs together and I couldn't tell you what year the album was made in, literally. But when I was looking at the photographs, I always said, that's you recording the guitar for Emily Says, Brent. And he was like, what? How do you remember that? And I was like, no. And I remember all those minute little details of where I was standing when a take was happening or when somebody was doing something. And I remember exactly where I was sitting when I wrote the songs and stuff, but I couldn't tell you the sequence of the events and I couldn't tell you what year or month, having a clue. 
So, yes, you're right. I said it to the lads afterwards because you're dead right. I mean, we always, as a collective, would always say, oh, the third album is the best. You know, that's the best album, our favourite album. But listen to the first album, I said to my brother, something about it that I can understand why other people on the outside see that as the best collection. It had something really immediate. There's an energy to it, even the slow songs and stuff. I didn't consider that, uh, you know, having a, a song with acoustic guitar and uh, strings and uh, next to a song that was like, you know, all guns blazing was a problem. So the, the first album has that nice kind of innocent thing where it just all happens. Yeah, I think it's a great collection and there's, it's really cohesive, you know, because it was a step away from the Coltrane's as well, because we had the third guitar player come in for the way it was recorded and the inexperience. I think it stands together. It would have been really nice to maybe have recorded in a, in a really good studio, with really experienced engineers and, and most importantly, a really good producer. You've said this before as well. You've made the point that you've often thought what would have happened to the likes of Ye, the likes of A House, the likes of Roller Skate Skinny, if Ye had been American bands who ended up being able to make a body of, you know, four or five or six albums. And for an Irish band at the time, the resources weren't there. You had to get out, you had to leave. It was very much stacked against you, really, wasn't it? I wasn't really aware of anybody working in Ireland who was considered a great producer. And like, I don't know whether Ireland was produced, sonically produced on the records at the time. I mean, look, all the bands you've named there are just amazing bands and they have all produced great records. But, you know, this is just my personal opinion. And I know the band doesn't totally agree with me here. But I think the sonic element was a problem for us. I'm not blaming anybody for that. It's just, I think, albums that come out of England or out of America, there's just, you know, the first thing you hear is the timbre of a record. That's for Sam Phillips said that. It's not the tune. It's not the, the way it's being played. It's just a general sense of sonic impact of the, of the record. And if, and if I play our stuff up against, say, for instance, the bands or whatever like that. There's a, there is a giant leap. I mean, in both, look, don't get me wrong, in all kinds of ways, I'm not comparing ourselves to them. But but I just feel, especially for myself, that a really good producer would have come along to me and say, look, maybe that song is not in the right key for you. Or, you know, listen, go away and work on those lyrics, you know. But I just don't think that Ronan being like, you know, six years younger than me and just learning the ropes as an engineer was in a position to lord it over me like that, you know? You had the power in that relationship. Yes, exactly, yeah. And you need somebody to come in from the outside who says... Cop yourself on. Uh, no, you need to get to the chorus quicker, you know? And yeah, and I would have been quite difficult to, a person to say that kind of thing to anyway, you know? Yeah. At that time, I think I'm much more aware of that now and I'm much more open to ideas and stuff because it was such an intense period that it almost goes like by like a flash, you know, and then you look back on it later on and you can't really blame yourself or anybody else for, you know, the way you behave. It just kind of because it's it's an unusual situation that like you're living in each other's pockets. You all want the same thing at the end of the day. It was There was never any commercial thought behind what we did. It was always the music, the song, what was best for the song. And we just had this kind of blind faith that, you know, we do the best work we can, you know, as authentically as we can, true to ourselves as we can, 
if it's good, it will get out there, you know, and people will appreciate it. But, you know, really, there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, the great example of that is that we didn't release Happiness is Mine as a single off the first album, which is literally crazy when you look back on it, you know. And maybe a re-recorded version of Emily Says would have made a really good single. That would They would have been two great singles off, off the album. We were moving on, moving on, moving on, moving on ahead. We, we built our own studio. And we, I think we had two microphones, literally, or two or three microphones, and they wouldn't have been the greatest microphones ever. And it was all kind of plastered together. We had one compressor, which was a mono compressor that's, you know, good for bass, but not much else. Now that I know about these things, I realized and we ran the whole mix through this mono compressor of I Know What You Want, which is kind of just crazy stuff, you know? It wasn't the, just the experience there, and I, I think... That element of it, I personally feel let us down a bit. I, you know, remastering the album is better now. But look, I'm probably going to get into trouble here for saying these this, but I still think it's a great record. You know, I'm not saying that I don't think it's a good record. I just really, you know, at the time, I think we would have given ourselves a better chance. Yeah, yeah. But we, we weren't offered the chance to go across to London and record an album over there. We weren't offered to go over and work with Seal Albini or whoever was making records in America at the time, you know. So it is what it is. And it's interesting, I was also talking to Stan about this last week. When the history writes itself, Brendan, what's mm. interesting to me is the idea that the bands that managed, as you said, to scrape the money together, to borrow from the pair, whatever it was, down to the credit union, and you got the album together. Yeah. They're the bands that are going to be remembered. And yet you probably know as well as I do that there were loads of great bands in the 90s. Yeah that didn't record, that didn't get the album out, yeah. and they're going to be forgotten about. Oh, yeah, yeah, and you're totally right. Yeah, I mean, as I said, everybody just had this idea that that was the only route to go, you know? Now everybody has a home studio. Now every, and, and, the, and you can make good quality recordings in the home studios now. That wasn't the case in those days. We were recording onto half-inch reel-to-reel with, you know, dirty heads, and we didn't really know what we were doing, using very basic microphones, and sometimes just sticking one microphone over a drum kit. No, that sounds good, you know. In a way, it's a great archive and it's a diary of that kind of experience, you know, which is a great thing too. But you're dead right. I mean, everybody's waiting around for the record company to come along and give them the golden handshake. Yeah. And then after that, it was kind of, okay, we've put an album out on our own and it did really well. Once it went on to No Disco and stuff, our first gigs as Revelina were pretty much packed out because of No Disco. We moved on from the Baggett Inn to Whelan's and we started playing as Revelino in there. And straight away, because of the record and because of No Disco playing Happiness is Mine, we had a, an audience, packed house, you know, great gigs, great nights again. I'm going to play you this. I put this together last year. I shared it with Bren at the time. You'll have heard this. We'll give it a quick play again there now, Brendan. And uh, well, I'm big sort of, well, not nostalgic exactly. I wonder what became of Revelino. Before that, it was Revelino, then current single, new single on Music Disc Records, and that was called Step On High. This is Earthquake. We will be in just a second. Fades in a bit. There's Dubhead Volume. I hope that while I've been away, people have been playing this next record a great deal on the radio. They certainly should have been. On Music Disc Records, this is Revelino. Teen Terrific, I'd say. Revelino from Dublin on Music Disc Records. That's called Step On High. And this is from a new LP or forthcoming. I love that record to the point of madness, I have to say. Even the bits where they go ba ba ba. That's Revelino on Music Disc Records uh, from Dublin, 17 single, and that's called Step on High. I think it's Dublin anyway. 
I have to say, I, I was surprised that he went so big for that song. You know, I mean, I I was kind of like, yeah, I didn't think it was our best song or our best single, but he loved it. I'm not going to argue with him. You know, <laughs> what do the bands know? You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think there's that lovely story then, Brendan, of um, how the seven inch was in his record box. Yeah. He had obviously the record collection, but he had this little box with about 100 records, 100 seven inches in it. And there was Step On High in amongst all these incredible records. Amazing, yeah, amazing. That must blow your mind. It kind of does, yeah. Well, I mean, it blows my mind. It's such an honour. And it blows my mind that John Peel was aware of us, loved the records. But it also blows my mind that that's the record he picked. <laughs> you know, it's, I just, I, you know, okay, all right, you like that one, that's cool, yeah. Jesus, are you ever happy? <laughs> yeah, no, but I swear, I, I, look, you know, I just don't think it was our best song or whatever, but look, you know, whatever, it, it, I'm not going to argue with John Peel. But yeah, it was great. And then the BBC did a documentary and they did the full 100 things. But yeah, it was amazing to be in there. It's a lovely documentary, that. It's up on YouTube, I think. It's a great documentary. Ye got to play one of those big music seminars over in New York. Yeah. I think it was a new music seminar or something That's like right. that. Yeah, yeah. The New York Times gave you a lovely review. I love this review. I think it's one of the best reviews. Revelino was a consummate band playing driving, catchy, psychedelia-tinged power pop. Its best songs, like Happiness Is Mine, were beautiful, harmony-laden confections full of falsetto singing and buzzing guitars. Yeah, great. Yeah, it's great. A guy called Neil Strauss from the New York Times. Just that's a lovely review, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is a lovely uh, description of the band. It's pretty accurate as well for what we were trying to achieve. Yeah. Look, we worked hard. We practiced hard. We were a very tight band. You know, our gigs were well attended and there was a good buzz around the band, but... It wasn't seen by the powers that be or whatever. You know, we never got signed to a big label. I'm going to tell you something, and I don't want you to take it the wrong way. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. You did your three albums. Yeah. Okay. And then we're getting into the early noughties. Television announced they're playing Vickers Street. I remember being at that. The support band weren't announced, as in it wasn't on the ticket. Right. Right. You get the support gig. I completely understand why you would jump at that gig, totally. But I remember around me at this packed gig, when you walked out on stage, there was almost this kind of like, oh, not Revelino. Oh, really? Okay. You know the way a band have their moments. I assume everybody at that gig probably at some stage had seen Revelino. Yeah. But there's this like sense of, oh, really? Not another Revelino gig. Come on. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a difficult spot. Yeah. I remember watching ye that night, thinking to myself, they look a bit jaded. Yeah. They look almost as if they don't actually want to be here. Yeah, that was a weird time. Yeah, it was a weird time for us. So we think we were, you know, disintegrating a little bit at that point. It was a weird time for me personally on a number of fronts. And another thing, we'd stopped playing Whelan's, you know. Yeah. That was really our home. And we started doing these support slots in Vicar Street because of the connection with Bren. The other gigs that we did to promote the last album were done in the smaller venue, the shelter beside Vicar Street. Yeah, like there was offers of gigs like yeah, Echo and the Bunny Man television and we kind of felt, especially with like the bands like Echo and the Bunny Man, we felt a bit of an affinity with them. Of course. We kind of couldn't turn it down, but yeah, they weren't our gigs. The music as well from the last album was more acoustic. It was slightly different. It wasn't as heavy and full on and stuff. We might have been better playing smaller venues. I never I never felt those big support slots. Big gigs. 
Yeah, you know, we played with the Kings in the RDS and we played with Neil Young and stuff. There was a couple of them that went well and things, but a lot of times, you know, there wasn't much of a point to them, unless you were going on tour with these bands, you know what I mean? Outside of Ireland, you were offered a tour around England with Neil Young. That might have been good. Absolutely. But supporting the Kinks, which at that point, to be brutally honest, were like a bloody cabaret band. Yeah. I mean, I'd never seen them before and I was embarrassed on their behalf. Now, God, for me to be speaking ill of the Kinks, like throughout the whole gig, he was going, and then he'd go, not yet. He'd stop and he'd go, not yet, not yet. As if that's the only song everybody wants to hear. Look, man, you've wrote Days. You've written bloody Waterloo Sunset. You've written some of the greatest pop songs ever. Don't be belittling yourself. Dead End Street. Thinking that people are only there to hear you really yeah. got me, you know. And you always take the gigs when they're there, but you're dead, right? I mean, I don't take that personally at all. I mean... The way you've described it there, you mentioned you were like the monkeys all like living out of each other's pockets for years. Is it really hard to pull that plug and say, look, lads, it's time we all walked away from this? By the time we were doing those uh, gigs, me and Brendan and Kieran were the only three left. That's right. Shane had left after we toured Broadcaster album. Well, he kind of said to me, like, I can't understand after the first album and Broadcaster how it hasn't happened for us. Something happens when you lose a member of the band that has been living with you and has been playing together with you. And you might be able to get another guy in who's a virtuoso player, but he might be not be quite right for the, that kind of close-knit thing that goes on. I mean, you, you know, when uh, you have a family unit like that and one person leaves and then Monty left, the bass player, we had to get two guys in from outside the album was, you know, the subject matter was kind of despondent on it a little bit. It was about the end of things and, you know, stuff that was happening. I do still think it's a very, very good album. with some beautiful moments and all that, but it doesn't have a happiness is mine or it doesn't have a don't leave me down. It doesn't have an Emily says, which is what I now appreciate when I listen to the first record again. Personally, for us, we might think to the end is the best record. I know there are people who do that, but from the outside looking in, the excitement of those two first records is, you know, would have been, especially for the kind of circuit that we were playing, which was colleges and people, and people were coming up to me, uh, you know, saying, oh, Happiness of Mine is, you know, such an important song to me at the moment and all that stuff. And I've since got that, you know, from them where there's nothing really on to the end which has that kind of quality, you know, if you know what I mean. Songs that connect with people on a really direct level, you know. You know, to the end, is, I literally said this, I don't want to do an album, for the best way I could describe it musically, was I want to do something that, that's like a cross between Leonard Cohen and The Stranglers. So, okay, that sounds exciting and stuff. So we cut, that's kind of what we went for. And I remember, uh, you know, after we released to the end, we were... Uh, supporting, so I can't remember who we were supporting, but we were in Vicar Street and Donovan was there. Monty kind of had a, a kind of a, a roundabout relationship with him, so he had sent him to the end and he came up to me and said, oh, you're the, the guy who wrote uh, uh, To The End. And I said, he goes, yeah, I love it, man. It's really great. It's like a cross between Leonard Cohn and The Stranglers. No. That's exactly what he said to me, right? He said, <laughs> but you should have got a chick to sing the lead vocals. <laughs> 
the first interview I ever did on radio was Donovan, right? And I had right. to spend a day in court library reading up. He sat opposite me with the guitar and he said, will I play you a song? And I said, Mellow Yellow. And he launched into it. And I just was like, yeah, wow. I was just speechless. Like, It's funny because I, that, that same night, you know, obviously, you know, the whole thing, six degrees of, of separation, you know. And uh, I was with a mate of mine. We're, we're all Beatles nuts, you know. But one mate of mine, uh, Carl, a uh, particular Beatles nut, you know. And we, we had a few drinks on us at that point, you know. The guy said to him, you know, six degrees is set. You can go over to that guy standing right there and talk to him about him teaching John Lennon the plucking uh, pattern that he wrote Julia with. So he, go, he goes over to Donovan and uh, you'd see the two of them chatting away and Donovan's obviously telling the story and his eyes are lighting up. This is fantastic. This is great, you know. About 20 minutes later, they're still talking really intensely, you know. And about a half an hour later, I see my mate walking this way and Donovan's coming out, go, walking after him, going, no, I need to tell you some more. <laughs> and my mate, no, Donovan, that's enough, that's enough. It's like really intense. You got more than he bargained for, you know. Like it's like he's running away from Donovan. Donovan wants to tell him all these stories with the Beatles, you know. You were asking how did that happen? We kind of just stopped playing together, you know. And we stopped. We stopped meeting up. It wasn't like oh a big fight where we threw you know stuff at each other and walked out and we didn't speak to each other. I remember once Bren came in and he said, "Look, I've I've been offered a job." And he kind of was saying, you know, how do you feel about it type of thing? And I said, man, look, you got to take it. Just you got to take it, you know. Yeah, yeah. We were at that point in our lives, you know, people needed to start making money. You wanted to settle down, have families, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it just what happened literally was it just got harder and harder to get people to agree on a time to come together, to work on songs, to, you know, practice, to commit to gigs. So it was literally just like, Okay, this is getting too hard to organize. Yeah. It just petered out really, you know, which is kind of, you know, yeah. maybe it would have been nicer, more rock and roll to had the big fight or whatever. It's nicer that you're still friends. That's way nicer. Yeah, I think we would even if we had had that argument, we would be still friends. So basically, yeah, so I was like left what did I want to do with my life? So I was doing cover gigs here and there just to make a little bit of money, even at that time. So basically, people just started asking us to play parties and asking me to play weddings and stuff. And kind of just said, okay, well, I'll see what I can do with this. So I put the same amount of attention to detail and the same amount of commitment into putting a really good cover band together that I had done with Revelino, you know? We got brass in, we got, you know, I wanted lots of people who could sing harmonies. So if you came to see Beat Club in a bar, you'd hear Good Vibrations, Life on Mars, Day in the Life, Penny Lane with the trumpet, you know? I've seen you, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you know what I mean? It's like just the best band we could be as a cover band if I'm gonna do this. That's how Revelino ended. It was time to get jobs. It was time to start making a living. I just kept writing songs. That's what I do habitually, like as a default position. If I sit down at night and I'll pick up the guitar, and I, you know, sometimes I, I practice and sometimes I'm learning covers. But a lot of the time I'm writing songs. So literally I have 20 years worth of songs behind me now. But I went through a period, Paul, which is very hard to describe this, but it was almost like I wanted to get away from that intensity. I wanted to get a hold of myself. You know what I mean? I behaved at times during the Revelino years and the Coltrane years that I wasn't always totally proud of. 
But yeah, so I mean, there was times when it wasn't that I was, wasn't a nice person. I wasn't a, ni- a nice person all the time, you know. And I did let the pressure get to me at times. I wish I had enjoyed the gigs more. I took it fairly seriously. I wanted the band to do really well. I did not want to be famous. I didn't really want to be a lead singer. But I wanted the songs to be performed and recorded as well as we could. And I wanted to have a career releasing albums. Brendan, yeah. congratulations on uh, Thanks. loving Thanks, these times. Thanks. One of the absolute brilliant moments over lockdown was getting Old Man Superman into the inbox the first yeah, time. Yeah. It was just like, oh, this is fantastic. Where's he been? Were these done over a period of time? Yeah, I mean, yeah, a long time. So bit by bit, I started, you know, getting interested in, in actual recording myself. That my cover band was doing really well. So any kind of spare cash I would have, I might buy a microphone or a preamp. So over the years, I built up a nice little collection of home recordings. And yeah, working away on the, the songs, I think that album was probably done over about a 10-year period. Yeah, I recorded about 30 songs. And now I wrote a lot more than that. But I didn't uh, keep myself to the songs that I thought were best. For instance, the Old Man Superman is a perfect example of that, which I just thought was a novelty song in a way. There was something quirky about it that was unusual, but I felt I had written a lot better songs that I hadn't even recorded for this. If you compare it back to the Revelino days, right? Who's the sounding board now? Like if you're at home with your home studio and as you said, you've got all of these songs and you're getting in musicians as and when you need them to contribute their parts, who's the critical sounding board? Barry O'Mahony. Do you know Barry from Luggage? We had done the Saturday Captain's record with Shane O'Neill as well. Through me, myself, Shane O'Neill and uh, Barry O'Mahony had worked was really kind of started out as a social life thing where we we started meeting in friends' houses. All of us were outside our bands, Blue and Heaven, Luggage and Revelina, but we loved our music and we got on great as friends. So we started just writing for fun, like just literally getting together. And then somebody bought a little Tascam recorder, you know, digital recorder. Over a few years then, as I said, I was building up this recording equipment. I worked on the Saturday Captain's albums with Shane and Barry. And then when I finished that, uh, he said to me, you know, now you've really got to go and do your own. Stop making excuses now, you know, get stuck into it. Every song or every take, I always go over to Barry's place and bring my acoustic guitar, bring a CD of the songs. And oh, here's my latest uh, idea. So play it to him and I'll sing him the song and he'll tell me, you know, that lyric isn't good enough or, you know, that's really good. He was really kind of an outside producer, lyrical advisor. He told me for the first time, no, don't say that. You know, you you need to talk more because in Revelino, I I kind of wanted to invent a new my own kind of language for writing the songs, which somebody had uh, described as portentous, and that was a very very accurate kind of description of the lyric. That was the melody maker, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. And uh, so yeah, uh, so you know your stuff. <laughs> so you know, I had that idea for Revelino, but he kind of said to me, "No, you should write in a much more conversational tone." And he was just a great encourager because there was a lot of times during the thing, as you said, when you're working on your own, you have a lot of doubts going through your head. You have a lot of conflict going through your head. Some mornings you literally wake up and you just want to delete it all because why am I wasting my time? And then other days you wake up and it's all great. It sounds great and you're all excited. But yeah, being in a band, you're 
you're pushing each other forward, you know, and yeah. you know, we're yeah. going to make a record and we have to do it by May the 22nd. So there's a deadline. You're recording on your own. The deadline is there's no deadline. You just keep putting things off. I started recording the stuff without the idea of actually putting the record out. That wasn't forefront in my mind. I was going to just record them for myself, maybe give them to friends. Was it scary putting your name on it? Absolutely, yeah, totally. Like right up to the end, I didn't want to put my name on it and I didn't want to put my face on it. And I was asking, you know, Finton Jones, who's in Beat Club, he's the multi-instrumentalist who plays every instrument imaginable. He helped me a lot with that record. So he made himself available to to record, you know, flute and saxophones and, and do harmonies. So him and Barry were the only people who really heard it, but they were very encouraging and, I, and then once I got to a point where I was like, okay, I am actually going to have to release this as an album. Everything about the album was a slow process. I had recorded 30 songs for it. I knocked that down to about 18. You had to pick, yeah. So I had 18 songs that I was record, that I'd recorded that I was happy with. I put drums, live drums on all those. That was the last kind of thing I did on the records. I was actually planning on using um, uh, program drums right up to the end. But Frank... He talked you around. I had put live drums on a few of the songs. And when we were nearly finished the mixing, Frank said to me, you know, he was, one time we took a coffee break and he was staring off in the distance and he said, you know, you're really going to have to go the extra mile here and put live drums on all these songs because there's a big difference sonically between the live drums and the program drums. And I was like, oh man, I'm out of money and everything. But hey, there's no deadline, you know? So if it takes another year, who cares? Nobody's waiting on Brendan Talon's record, you know. But right up to the very end, I was going to put it out under a band name and not have me on the cover. And again, it was Barry and Manny. I went over to him one night, you know, frying his head again about all this stuff. I said, look, you know, I just have to think of a band name. I have to put a, think of a cover, all that. What's the image? What's the, and he said, look, just put it out under your own name. It's your work. It's your statement. I was just about to say it's a statement of intent. That's what it is. Yeah. So he just said, look, put it out under your own name. It's your work and put your face on it. Because he started, he started, he's got this huge record collection in his gaff, you know, and it's all vintage records. And he was taking out Elton John, like, look, it's his face on the cover. And then he was taking out Randy Newman, look, it's his face on the cover. And Colin Blunstone, it's his face on the colour. Like, you know, just taking all these records of people. He said they have their name on it and their face on it. That's what you should do. So I was like, okay, but I really didn't want to. I was very nervous about that. Just the idea of even seeing a, re- a review in the newspaper with my name. You must be thrilled with the response, so Brendan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. You know, and like Old Man Superman, you know, like the st- story behind that was I I had organized um, a drum session and I wanted to get three three songs done that I really knew were going to be on the record. And then if we, I said to the drummer, if we have time, We'll record Old Man Superman at the end, but I don't think that's going to make the record, you know. But when we got to the session, we recorded the three songs and then we had a half an hour left. And I said to him, did you have a chance to look at Old Man Superman? And he said, yeah, that's your single. That's your single. And I was like, no, 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 I don't. I don't think that's going on the record, you know. And he said, no, man, that's your single. If somebody says that, you got to take that on board. And then when I brought the songs up to Frank uh, up in the studio, so he was sitting there and he was listening to the song, you know, All Man Superman. And I felt this kind of strange atmosphere in the room, like, you know, I was looking at it, everything okay. But there was definitely something strange going on, you know. So just got to the end of the song and I saw a tear coming down his face. And I said, Frank, what's going on? He goes, 
he just turned around and says, Grand, these are tears of happiness. <laughs> because he's just said, that is the most interesting piece of music I've heard in a long time, you know. I just can't wait to get stuck into it. He was just as a musical person. So I went, okay, that song's definitely gone on the records, you know, because it's definitely affecting other people in a way that I hadn't reckoned with. And then when I put it out, I was getting all these texts from people going, my kid loves that song. Every time they come home from school, they want to hear it and all that stuff. So it's like, okay, okay, great, you know. And now that's my favourite song on the album, or one of my favourite songs on the album. And the ones that were more personal to me are less so, you know. So, it's, you know. Yeah. The reaction to the re-release of yeah. the first record must have been amazing. Yeah. I take it from a personal point of view for yourself, getting this album out, must have just been a fantastic moment for you, I take it. Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, you know, I've been a songwriter the whole time, even though I haven't released anything. And, yeah. And I've been working away on the songs and going, God, that's a good song. I should really put that out. But having that song, kind of self-doubt, or I'm not the most self-confident person when it comes to that thing. I'm not, you know, you know, going around to... Ron McHugh said to me one time, you know, the difference between you and other people I work with is you can't convince you that it's good enough. <laughs> Whereas other singers, you can't convince them they need to do it again because a lot of singers think everything that comes out of their mouth is golden, you know? I'm the opposite. I kind of like, oh, I'm not so sure. Is that good enough? Whatever. So I had all that going on in my head and, you know, it's money as well. It's expense. And, you know, there's times where it was like, oh, do we need a new car or do I need to do it? <laughs> you know, oh, the bloody the washing machine needs to be fixed. Yeah. Uh, the, so the 500 euro that I had saved up to do a few drum sessions is gone. So you have to wait another few months. So it was all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was a big personal adventure and a big personal journey, a big personal commitment time-wise recording it. So the fact that people are enjoying it and that it is getting a good reaction, Brilliant. it's just amazing because you, you actually just don't know until you put it out. Yeah, of course. What people are going to say. But you, the reason we put the Revelino thing out was because I had finished, uh, I had mastered that album, that solo album, back when uh, in March when the, the lockdown was announced first. So it was like, okay, I had to put a bit of money aside to put it on vinyl. And that was gone because suddenly my work diary was completely emptied. So I was like, okay, I can't spend any more money on this project when I literally all my gigs for the next six months have been cancelled. Frightening. Yeah, really. Yeah. Because I, I remember, like, I vividly remember us kind of standing around outside the venue going, God, this could mean we lose one or two gigs, this COVID thing, you know. But you know, over the course of two weeks, this next six months have completely been cancelled, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Obviously, the album was put totally on the back burner at that point. Play, I'd given it to Brian and Kieran at this point and a couple of my friends. So they said, look, well, it would be good if we just put the re remastered the Revel, you know, to put it out. That would get your name back out there. People would remember, okay, Brian and Tal, you know. And Fantastic. I think it worked perfectly, to be honest. You know, it was, it was no master plan. It was just like, this would be good. Get a buzz back and get people remembering that you actually wrote songs. You know, and it was great for us because we always wanted to put the album out on, on vinyl anyway, you know. So the reaction to Reveline was fantastic. So it was like, OK, now I'm in a kind of nice place to put my own album out there. That would give me a little bit more confidence and stuff. So, yeah, I think, you know, obviously, yeah, it helped getting reviews and getting stuff on the radio and stuff. But the, the Reveline, you know, lads. Uh, we've always been great mates, but because I work weekends and Bren works weekends, you know, there wasn't as much communication 
as they had been. So it was really nice to have that time to sit around and just start chatting again as friends now, you know. And we've kind of really gotten back into that place where we're close and we're talking to each other once a week now again and stuff. Not that we we ever fell out. We were always great friends, but you just because... I was gigging on the weekend. Life gets in the way, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was great. And Bren really helped me massively with the uh, with the solo album, getting it out there. And he he did a huge amount of work for me over like probably a nine month period, maybe even longer. Where he's because I can do the music, I can write the songs, I can do the arranging, I can look after all that part of it you know, getting out there and ringing people up and marketing the album and getting it into the hands of people and all that kind of stuff, getting into shops and just that part of it, just, you know, I have to hold my hands up and say, really not good at that. But Brent just took the reins off me on that element of it. He just, you know, helped me. And we, like, we literally had a couple of friends, one guy, uh, Rory, uh, who was doing the videos for me and my good friend, Barry Woodley, Put together the uh, the website, so I had a kind of little group of people helping me get it moving forward. You know, brilliant. We'll end on a song from the Revelino record, if you don't mind. Would you pick just your own favorite track off that album, and maybe tell me why? Okay, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to go with Happiness Is Mine. I just think it's you know it's that song that connected with people. Uh, have amazing memories of playing that few times. At one particular time, we, we I was in Cork and we were playing in, in UCD. And I, you know how long it used to take to drive back from Cork and I got stuck in traffic and everything. And I remember walking in and literally made it with the lads who were standing beside the stage sweating. You know, I didn't think we were going to make it. And the place was packed full of students. Got up on stage, played Happiness is Mine. The whole place just singing the chorus along with us. People you've never seen before at gigs, it seemed to connect. It just was one of those songs that was connected with people and it bridged a lot of divides for us. And so for me, it means a lot. I remember exactly where I was when I wrote it and, and you know, thinking, okay, this is there's something special about this song because it is probably the obvious one to pick. But hell, you know, that's that's the one. It's We've got a lot of great memories, that song. It was the calling card, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah, yeah. It was the one that, and it was played, it was played on No Disco, and it was the one that garners its crowd straight away, even though, funny enough, it wasn't released as a single at the time. Like, I, I actually played a wedding recently where they asked us, will we play that song? Because they had met at a Red Lima gig in Whelan's. That must just melt your brain. Yeah, that's nice. You know, I mean, they were delighted to hear that I was playing in a chorus band that they could have at their wedding and I could play the Revelino song that brought them together kind of thing. You know, Just really nice stories like that. I think that song doesn't mean a lot, you know, on that level. Listen, Brendan, it's been a huge pleasure chatting to you. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it. When I put out another record, we'll do another one. (laughs) In another 10 years. <laughs> no, I am not going to wait that long, I swear. Great talking to you, Paul. We got it together in the end, but it was worth it. Slon. Slon. Happiness is mine. I'll show you what it's like. Sometime. Bright star.
Thanks again to Brendan Tallon. So go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter and you'll find links to the episode notes with lots of further information on some of the things that I discussed with Brendan, including a link to the documentary about John Peel's record box. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe, like, share. Now, episode nine will feature another Dublin band who also released their debut album in 1994. Here's a short preview. You know, if you tried to do it, if you set out to produce it, you wouldn't do it. Always had that noisy, experimental improvisation tendency. Air Force guy was getting a record. I could have stopped then. We didn't go looking for labels. They came no. looking for the wormholes. The chicks, we just did it. The lads were unstoppable once they got playing. Here Knows When Great Irish Albums Revisited, Episode 9, Chicks Dig Scars by Wormhole. So there you go, a short preview of Episode 9. It'll be available from all the usual podcast listening platforms in the next few weeks. The theme music to the podcast is called Irish Rhapsody Redux and it's by Mark Healy. It's his reworking of a 1930s recording of the New Light Symphony Orchestra's version of Victor Herbert's Irish Rhapsody. Until the next episode, goodbye.